mornings we're looking at the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order and uh, find ourselves uh, in uh, the night uh, immediately before his crucifixion, such a rich section of scripture. And we're going to uh, look at four verses specifically this morning in Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 31. And the Lord, that is Jesus, said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you've returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But Peter said to Jesus, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said to Peter, I tell you, Peter. The rooster shall not crow this day before you deny three times that you even know me. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the richness of it. We thank you for the supernatural life that is found there. And Lord, we thank you for all of the lessons that are important for us to understand that are found in these four verses We pray that your Holy Spirit would just be great in this room. Just continue to be great now as we worship you in the study of your word. We pray that you take this passage and off of the printed page, Lord. We love the printed page. We love what's recorded there. But, Lord, we also want it to have a living place in each one of our lives. We pray by your Holy Spirit you would make a friend of this passage to us that you would plant this in our spirit in a place that you can bring it to our remembrance. As you see, we will have need of in the remainder of our pilgrimage. And we ask it of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In this passage, we have Jesus' very, very priceless perspective That he gives us concerning those times when Satan is allowed to sift us as wheat. This morning we want to notice, first of all, the sifter, then the sifting, the sifted, and then our confidence that we're to have during such periods of sifting and the aftermath, finally, of sifting. The sifter is Satan. One of the names that God gives for Satan in the Bible is the name destroyer, because that's what he is. In the book of Revelation, he is referred to in the same verse as Apollyon and Abaddon. One is a Hebrew name and the other is a Greek name communicating the same thing, and that is that he is a destroyer. And I think that perhaps uh, Peter himself Thinking about this very chapter in his life, this period of sifting, he refers to Satan as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour in his first epistle. Peter wrote and he said, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. I remember as a young boy, probably about eight years old. And uh, going to the San Francisco Zoo for the first time with my twin brother. And uh, we had been told before our arrival at the zoo that one of the things we were going to do that day was to witness the two o'clock feeding of the lions. 
Now, that uh, was wonderful in one respect, but it completely ruined the rest of the day. Because we tried to be uh, enthusiastic about looking at the zebras and the giraffes and the hippopotamuses and the rhinoceroses. But when you're an eight-year-old boy, all you can think about the rest of the day is going into that building where all those lions are, and they're going to feed those lions raw flesh, and you're going to get to watch those lions tear that flesh to pieces and, and, uh, and eat it. So we were completely dominated, at least I was my thinking, over that opportunity. And so we made our way to the building that housed the lions, and we were there plenty early, not wanting to miss a single bit of this, and got there well ahead of time. And we noticed that the lions were already in their cages, individual cages, and they were pacing back and forth. And as the two o'clock hour began to approach, their pacing became uh, a little more rapid. They began growling, and ultimately, they must have had some kind of an internal clock related to all of this. They started roaring as this two o'clock time was, was uh, drawing very, very close. Now, sometimes you have uh, weird thoughts as a kid, but I couldn't help but... Uh, but think as I'm standing in that room that is now just jam-packed with people, what would happen if all of them got loose right now in this room? It would have been like the hometown buffet for lions. You would have all been toast for sure. And uh, just the kind of the danger that we were in in there if it weren't for those bars and all. And, of course, tragically enough, just in about two or three years ago, uh, uh, a lion got loose in the San Francisco Zoo and and uh, create, uh, created quite a bit of devastation before he was uh, ultimately shot and horror for those that learned what the instincts of, of the lions were. But they, the workers then came in promptly at two o'clock it was fabulous. And they began to take these gigantic slabs of meat and throw them into the uh, pens with it, cages with these Lions, And you would watch the lion begin to knock this. I don't know how much it weighed. It would knock this thing all over the, the cage in order to have it give some appearance of life that they were, you know, as actually some kind of prey. And then it would pounce upon it and uh, would would begin to devour it. No one needed to tell those lions what to do with it. I mean, instinct took over and they only knew one thing to do with that meat, and that was to devour it. And the Bible teaches in the same way Satan doesn't know how to do anything else with a human life, saved or unsaved, except to destroy it. He is a destroyer. He really is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And this destruction was Satan's interest in Peter. He wasn't looking to ruin Peter's day uh, kind of hassle them a little bit. Satan's desire was to be able to destroy uh, Peter. Now, I think it's both interesting and very, very important to notice in verse 31 that Jesus declared that Satan had asked for Simon, uh, Simon Peter, by name. That word you, when it declares there, Jesus said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you. That you in the Greek that is plural. He asked for all 11 of the disciples or the apostles that were left. Judas has gone off to betray Jesus by this point in, in time. So he asked for all of the disciples, but Jesus focuses specifically upon Peter. Now, 
It can be a little bit alarming to realize that uh, Satan even knows our name. But he knows a lot more about each one of us as Christians than our name. I'm convinced that the devil knows us up and down, left to right, inside and out. There's very little that he doesn't know uh, about us. In the book of Job, uh, where a conversation between the Lord and Satan is recorded uh, as follows, we're told that then the Lord said to Satan in Job chapter 1, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. The word considered there is actually a military term that can refer to a military probe, where in a military action you would send out a small group of men to probe the outer defenses uh, of your enemy in order to find some kind of a weakness in your enemy to then be able to exploit it in kind of a full-fledged attack uh, upon that. And that is what the devil does. He probes our life through temptation and other means to find what our weaknesses are and then having discovered what those weaknesses are, then where it is that ultimately when he wants to take his attack against us, where he is, is bound to be the most successful. Now, clearly, Satan had done this to Job because later in the book of Job, in chapter two, Satan actually complains to God and says, have you not made a hedge around Job, around his household and all that he has on every side? Everywhere he tried to penetrate to get through to Job, he, he discovered that God had this hedge around. And how would he know about that hedge except that he had attempted these probes in his life in the same way? We can be absolutely sure as Christians that Satan has probed our lives in every way that he knows how to do it. I think especially in the realm of temptation in order to discover our weaknesses, those areas that he could ultimately exploit uh, in order to attempt to destroy us. Now, interestingly and, and significantly, we also notice concerning Job and also concerning Peter that Satan had to ask God's permission to attack God's children. And he could only go as far as God allowed him to go. We see it in the book of Job. When Satan is allowed to attack Job the first time, God declares to him, you may touch all of his possessions, but you can't touch his body. And Satan launched an attack upon Job where he went as far as God's permission gave him, took everything away from him short of touching his body physically. When God allowed a second attack of Satan upon Job's life, life he still set perimeters upon the devil. And he said to him, you may touch his body, but you cannot take his life. And again, when the devil was given that permission and given that room, he did everything short of taking Job's life, took advantage of the full permission that God gave to him. But he stopped short of that because God had placed that limitation upon him. Satan is not free to attack us indiscriminately, but only with God's permission and only within the boundaries that God sets. 
And that's good for us to know. Next, the sifting. Satan desires to sift us as wheat, Jesus said. But what does this sifting mean? The word sifting would have produced a picture immediately in the minds of the disciples. They would have watched this since the time that they were born, the sifting process in the ancient world. It was this is an agricultural illustration. And when the wheat would be harvested out into the field, as wheat comes in, there is a, a rich, valuable grain that is inside of a kernel of wheat. But on the outside is this hull. There is this hard outer shell that is chaff. Uh, that separates you from the the uh, the meat of of the grain. And so what they would do is they would bring in, find within a village, a large place, a, a flat spot within the village that would be a rocky surface. And they would put the grain out on that surface. And oftentimes there would be a pole that would be placed at the center of that rock. And they would bring in a, a large animal, an ox, something like that. And that large animal would then pull a gigantic uh, log behind it. And as the weight of that log would roll over that weed, it would crack that outer shell and separate it from the meat in, inside. It would separate the worthless from what was valuable there. And so they would, this would accomplish and around and around and around the oxen would go until that separation occurred. And then they would take that weed and that chaff together and they would do what was called winnowing of it, where they would put it in these great flat baskets when the wind was blowing on a high spot in the village, perhaps. And they would toss this grain into the air and the grain being heavy would fall back down the meat of the wheat down into the basket. The wind would then blow the chaff away. But even then they weren't done in, in the process related to the wheat. Finally, after having done that, there would still be some chaff left. Occasionally there would be a rock or two in it. And so they would then sift it, put it through a screen of some kind until only the wheat had fallen through and everything else had been separated uh, from it. And so there would be that uh, threshing, the winnowing, and then there would be the sifting. And this is the process that Jesus is talking about. I don't know if you've ever been in spiritual warfare where you say, Lord, this kind of feels like somebody is rolling a log over me back and forth uh, all day, every day for several days now. And that's kind of the intensity that sifting or a spiritual attack uh, can can take. Now, why was it necessary to thresh or to sift wheat? Sifting is essentially a separating. It's the means by which the chaff, the worthless, was separated from the wheat that is the valuable. And so spiritually speaking, it occurs when Satan is allowed to attack us in order that some area of chaff or worthlessness might be removed from our lives. And that's what Satan's attacks accomplish. I think that sometimes when we're new Christians and uh, uh, we go through our spiritual warfare, we discover it and experience it for the first time, maybe in the early months and years of our Christian life. We can think about spiritual warfare or the attack of the devil against our lives and God's purposes in our lives. And we can tend to think that 
the whole purpose of a spiritual warfare and attack that God allows is that we would simply endure it, that we would outlast it, that we would still be alive on the other side of it. So it's kind of like going to an amusement park. They lock you into some ungodly roller coaster. And this thing's got all kinds of twists and turns and you're wondering why in the world did I ever let my family talk me into getting on this thing? And all you want to do is just survive it, get out of that car at the end of the ride, and uh, be able to walk. And sometimes we look at spiritual warfare as just this thing that God allows that we survive, and if we survive that it, it's done its full work. We endured it. But that's not what Jesus reveals to us here as a sole reason for spiritual warfare. Many times the Lord will allow a spiritual warfare to occur in our lives in order that it would remove some carnality from our lives. Make us aware of some sin in our lives that needs to be removed, something that's worthless in our lives, some chaff within our lives. And one of the great things that happens as we walk with the Lord long enough is sooner or later we begin to look at spiritual warfare and realize this isn't just about surviving something. This isn't just the devil attacking me. But God has allowed him to go this far because God is accomplishing something through this. And then to be able to look at it and say, what in the world is worthless in my life right now that God is wanting to remove from my life through this spiritual warfare? And then to be able to look back in our Christian life and see these seasons of warfare and realize what had been removed from our lives as a result of it. It's a wonderful sifting that has occurred. Spiritual warfare is not one dimensional. God is doing a lot of things. As, as he allows it and as it as it occurs. This brings us to the sifted and the sifted is none other than Simon Peter himself. Now, most of us love <laughs> Simon Peter because we can relate to him and he gives us hope. Peter, I he's just one of my favorites because it's so reassuring when you've put your foot in your mouth for that, I don't know what time and number of times for what you've said or you've done something idiotic or whatever. You say, where in the, can I turn in the Bible to have some hope? And most of us know we can go and read about Peter, that there was life on the other side of this gaff. So we, we feel very affectionate toward him because of his of his frailty and his humanity. And, uh, but we also love him so much for how God used him. The book of Acts, I suppose, Peter's probably second only to the Apostle Paul in terms of the, the disciples and the apostles for the greatness of how God used them. And then we go into the New Testament and realize that the Holy Spirit used the, uh, the Apostle Peter to bring two of the most important uh, epistles in the New Testament into existence uh, for us. And so uh, that, that was the potential. That was the wheat that God saw in Peter, these great things that were in him, the things that he was going to do. But at the time that God speaks this, Jesus speaks this to Peter, he's not entirely likable. 
There's a lot to dislike in his life. He's he's in the flesh quite a bit. He's fairly carnal. Now, this is why I recognize it, because I recognize all of that. And he desperately needed a fair amount of chaff to be removed from his life before God was going to do all these wonderful things through him. The fact of the matter is, at this point in time, Peter was full of pride. He was full of a very ungodly, carnal desire for greatness. All of the disciples were, but he was no different. Where he was arguing, even up to this night, over and over again with the disciples, arguing passionately over why he was the greatest, even among the eleven. It should be given the greatest position in the kingdom of God next to Jesus, only Jesus alone. He was full of self-confidence. We see in verse 33 that Peter thinks that it's inconceivable that he could ever, ever deny Jesus. Even under the threat of prison, Lord, even under the threat of death, I would never, ever deny you. And yet, as we'll see in in a coming week, just within a few hours of all of this, he is going to deny three times that he even knows Jesus. And one of those times is going to be before a little maiden couldn't even stand up to her in confessing Christ. And that warfare would expose him to himself, which is a lot of what warfare does for the weak thing that he was apart from the Holy Spirit. He is filled with a very dangerous, arrogant insensitivity toward people and harshness toward the feelings of others. Peter had the potential in in what he was in the natural without a sifting to spend the rest of his life hurting large amounts of people rather than helping them. And, and if God had not overruled this sifting by Satan to soften him and to humble him. Elsewhere, the same account that we're reading here, as it's recorded in the other Gospels, we uh, discover that Peter speaks in this very setting to Jesus and said, though they all deny you, speaking of the other eleven, I will never deny you. I don't doubt that, Jesus, your words, that this group is going to deny you. I haven't been impressed with them from day one. But I'm not cut from the same cloth these people are cut from. I'm something different from all of that. And he just publicly humiliates them right in front of their Savior and doesn't even think twice about the damage that he's done. This failure in Peter's life was absolutely necessary. And I'm personally convinced that that it was not only absolutely necessary in Peter's life, but I believe in necessary failure in the Christian life period. I don't speak for all of you, but I speak for myself, and I speak for some of you in this room tonight, this morning rather, Without necessary failure, how else would some of us learn humility, even to the degree that we have? How else would some of us have become softer 
in our treatment of other people, gentler in our treatment of other people. How else would some of us have ever abandoned our self-confidence in order to discover the power of the Holy Spirit? How else would some of us have ever come to appreciate the greatness of God's grace if we hadn't depended on it on the other side of some failure in our life? Which of us that has raised children hasn't looked at our children, seen their uniqueness in human history, seen the unique blessings and challenges that they're going to face based upon their strengths and their weaknesses and their personality? Which of us that has raised a child hasn't been able to see significant evidence that they are descendants of Adam and Eve and impacted by that ancient garden long ago and not realized that sometimes the best thing that could happen to them in some area of their life or for the development of their character is that they need to fail to learn what they will learn in their failure and then to pick themselves up and move forward. So often after we've walked in this life with the Lord for a little while, we can spot a new Christian and we can see a Peter in him. We see so much potential. We see so much wheat. We see so much value such gifting and calling that God has put into their life, but still in those early years or months, they still possess a considerable amount of chaff. So much pride and so much arrogance and so much, you know, self-confidence, so much harshness and insensitivity self-reliance, and you look at them the distance of years and having been through some portion of sifting ourselves, and you find yourself silently praying for them, Lord, don't deny them the needed sifting that will come into their life. But Lord, I beg you, protect their faith and protect your calling in their life when they go through the deep siftings that will be between what they are now and what they will one day become for your glory. And really, it never stops for all of us as Christians, this whole process, as we grow in Christ's likeness, and that's what we're growing in as Christians. If Christ is the standard, and he is, then there will always be great room for growth in all of our lives, no matter how long we walk with the Lord. I remember a, a story that was told by G. Campbell Morgan, one of the greatest Bible teachers of the last century in both England and in the United States. And he told a story of vacationing or on holiday in England somewhere. He wasn't teaching as usual in his pulpit, the Westminster pulpit in in uh, London, but they were visiting in another town and he and his wife went to a different church 
And as they were in that service and he listened to the teaching and the handling of the word of God, Campbell Morgan came out and he just began to just speak glowingly, enthusiastically of the sermon that had been preached by this young pastor. And his wife just quietly said to him, he'll be better once he's suffered. They came back years later to that same church and listened to the same pastor Campbell Morgan says, so it was. He had suffered and he was a better instrument of God for it. And it's true of all of us. This produces great things in our lives. What is our confidence during times of sifting? Verse 32. You notice the first two words of verse 32, Jesus' words. He declares, but I... That word but is an interesting word in the human condition. Sometimes this happens in counseling. Sometimes it happens in just regular conversation where you're talking with somebody and they're uh, telling you, giving you an account of some particular event. And sometimes they'll go to great lengths to describe the situation and this and what they did. And then the other person did this and this and that. And you wonder where in the world is this all going and everything. And they lay this whole thing out exhaustively. And then all all of a sudden there in the in the midst of it, you hear the word you're waiting for. And then they'll say, but. And the word but means, all right, they're really getting to the point now. This is exactly where they've been driving to. And very often they then follow that but with with telling us why none of that means anything except what I'm going to tell you right now in terms of how I processed it. So the word but oftentimes means forget everything I've just said and listen to what I have to say right now. And when Jesus speaks and he says, but I, he's telling us that, that forget everything I've just told you in terms of, of Satan here and what he's going to do about coming against you, how he's going to sift you as wheat, but I. He said, now this is the, this is the real thing. This is the really important thing. And that but I reminds us that there is always one who is greater than the devil who's at work in our lives. And that one is the Lord Jesus himself. Sometimes when we're in a spiritual warfare, we think that uh, the devil's the only one that's at work in our lives at the moment. It's like you're in some kind of a Rocky movie or something. You know, you're in some boxing thing and the devil's just clubbing you to death. And Jesus went out to get a Hebrew national hot dog. He's completely unaware. But Jesus reveals to us here that any time there's this kind of sifting that's going on, yes, the devil is doing what he is doing, no doubt about that. But that the Lord is also actively involved in the situation himself. I'll tell you, it must be very frustrating to be the devil. And I don't pity him at all. I'm glad for it. For God to give him the room to express his destructive desires over and over and over again, and then to watch Jesus unfailingly turn it around and make it serve God's purposes to such a degree that all that Satan is ever left with at the end is with chaff. 
The chaff that God has used him to remove from our lives. The Lord has doomed the devil to a life of frustration in this regard. And I'm glad for it. Notice, too, that Jesus goes on to say, not only but I, but I have prayed for you. Yes, Satan has asked for you by name to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you. In other words, the intercession of Jesus for us is greater than anything the devil can dish out. And the devil can dish a lot out. And during these times of sifting in our lives, Jesus stays very actively involved in our lives through intercession. I don't know that there is a single thing that you can remind me of as a Christian. Whether you remind me of it or the Bible reminds me of it or the Holy Spirit reminds me of it, my heart never fails to soar every time I'm reminded that the Lord is actively praying for me all of the time and for you. And what that tells me is if he's praying for me, he's very current concerning my life and what's going on in my life. And also that he's actively involved in this way on my behalf, that he hasn't left me or he hasn't forsaken me. The Bible teaches that Jesus is constantly praying, not just for Peter in times like this, times of sifting, but also praying for you and I. Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 8, and he put it this way. Therefore, he is also, speaking of God, able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he ever lives to make intercession for them. I'm sorry, that's Hebrews chapter 7. Here's Romans chapter 8. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Now, notice what Jesus says that he prays for related to us. He prays that our faith should not fail. What did he pray for Peter? He prayed for Peter that his faith would not fail. He didn't pray that Peter would be spared the sifting. He didn't even pray that Peter wouldn't fail. Now, that's something. Again, this failure was necessary for Peter. And so he prayed that Peter's faith would not fail in the midst of the sifting. And Peter did fail, but his faith didn't fail. And do you know why his faith didn't fail? Jesus is in a session for him. That's the only reason. When he gets done denying Jesus for the third time on the following morning and he begins to cry those bitter tears, he has shocked himself. He has not shocked God. Neither do we. You wonder what in the world kept Peter from just driving off the cliff of condemnation and shame. It was the intercession of Jesus for him during that time of sifting in his life. That's what kept him. It's amazing to me to think as you go to the next day, as we will in the, in the next coming weeks, is Jesus is being scourged as the crown of thorns is being placed upon his head. 
as he's being nailed to the cross, as he hangs on the cross, while Peter's sifting is at its greatest in terms of the shame and the condemnation and the attack of the enemy against him. The entire time all of these other things are happening to Jesus, he is actively interceding for Peter in the middle of what he's in the middle of. I tell you what a savior we have, what a God we get to serve and we get to live for. Notice the aftermath of the sifting or the failure there in verse 32. What do we do when we've failed? He says, and when you've returned to me, strengthen your brethren. The first thing I need to do at a time like this is to return to the Lord. Jesus said, when you return to Peter, he didn't say if you return. Wouldn't that be terrible? Peter, you're going to be the devil's asked for you by name. You're going to be sifted as wheat. And listen, if I ever see you again, try to be a good influence on other Christians the rest of your life. He doesn't say that. That will horrify me. But he says, when you return, it was never in doubt. It was never in doubt that he would return. Those of us in this room and our own private story with the Lord, the things we've done and all of these deals, and you wonder why do we sit in a room like this? Why has our faith prevailed? Why, when because of our own shame and our own sin or whatever else anybody else did to us, we didn't want anything to do with Christ, we didn't want anything to do with Christianity or the church, and we head way out there, and there's nothing that the devil can dish out against us that can cause us to ever lose sight of that confidence within us and, and God keeping alive the, this great faith that we have in God, that God is real, that God is true, that Jesus has saved me. And the reason we go out there for a day or for an hour or for a minute or for long decades and come back to God in places like this is because of the intercession of Jesus alone. That's the reason. That's why we survive, is the intercession of Jesus for us today. If you sit here today and you haven't been in a church for years, and you know what your story is, you say, I can't believe I still believe in God after what I've been through, after what I've done. I can't believe I'm sitting in a church this morning. I don't know what to ascribe it to. Ascribe it to the fact that God never let go of you or your faith. And He continued to intercede for you. And He loves you. And He made sure that your faith never failed. That happens all the time. All over this city. Every week. And all over this world. It was never in doubt that Peter was going to return. And then number two, what do we do following the failure? Take what you've learned during your sifting and now use that to strengthen your brethren. What did Peter learn? He learned humility and now humbled. He becomes one of the great encouragers to Christians in trial in the history of the church. 
No longer proud, no longer self-confident, no longer seeing himself as better than other Christians or even a Christian or in competition with other Christians. He became one whose sole concern was that every contact he had with another member of the body of Christ was that he would be a strengthening influence to their faith, their faith in God's the power of Jesus's intercession, their faith in the greatness of God's grace. That ministry of encouragement and strengthening the brethren on the part of Peter carries all the way through into this room today. Do you realize that for Christians in deep, deep sifting or trial or difficulty, There is hardly any other place you can go in the entire Bible for strength and encouragement than first and second Peter. Either write that down or write it down in your mind. Those you cannot. The only two places that equal it in all of the Bible in my mind is the book of Job and the book of Psalms. But to take and pick up those two epistles that are written to encourage and strengthen Christians, even in the midst of fiery trials. All of the Peter could have met the Holy Spirit, could have never used Peter as an instrument to write those two epistles. The Peter that we read about in Luke chapter 22. But he could write those two epistles through the Peter that was formed through this kind of sifting. And Peter ends his Second, his final epistle with these words, his final desire to strengthen us. Here's what it comes down to. But grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And to him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. And so this morning we give Jesus praise even for the sifting that he allows in our lives because of the worthless things that he causes that sifting to remove from our lives. And because of the godly character and the Christ likeness that is revealed in us as the worthless is removed. If you sit here today as a Christian and you are backslidden, your faith has not failed because God's not through with you. Come home. Come back to the Lord. Come back to assembling together with the saints. And then for the rest of your Christian life, use the great lessons that you learned about God's faithfulness, about his grip, about his grace in that time of sifting to encourage Christians in those same things concerning their God for the rest of your pilgrimage. If you sit here today and you are not yet a Christian You need to become a Christian. You say, I don't know that I want to become a Christian. After a sermon like this, you want to become a Christian. 
Because out there on your own, you don't have God working this within parameters. You're open game for the devil. But here's what I want you to know. There is no person in this world who is so bad that they can't be saved. Who has disappointed God so deeply that they cannot be saved. Nor is there anyone so good that they don't need to be saved. Doesn't matter where you've been, what you've seen, what you've said, what you've been in the middle of. God will save you today and he'll change your life and he'll make you a great trophy of his grace and use you to give great hope to the rest of the world that what he has done in you, he will also do in them. And that is the single great hope that this world needs in this hour in human history, that hope that we sang about earlier today. The confidence in God's ability to and his willingness to save any and all of us. There are going to be men and women up in front immediately after the service. They're going to have a badge on that says prayers. So you can identify them easily. And they'd love to pray with you to begin that personal relationship with God today. If you need prayer for anything this morning, they'd love to pray with you and to pray for you. Let's stand together and we'll pray now. Father, it was just a, a group of simple people who love you in a little tiny spot, even in a bigger city of Modesto. But we know where our prayers go, Lord, and we know that you listen to them. And we thank you, Lord, as we look back on our Christian lives, no matter how long we've walked with you. We thank you for what your refining has produced in our lives. How you have made these periods of sifting serve us and serve you, Lord, in moving us forward to Christ's likeness and forward to fruitfulness and maturity in a Christian walk. Thank you, Lord, for what these periods of sifting remove from our lives. And thank you, Lord, for what they nurture and develop. We give you praise, Lord, for how masterful you have been in each one of our lives in orchestrating every single bit, Lord. We thank you as your children this morning for the privilege of being able to entrust our lives today, not just our eternities, but to be able to rest in you day by day, the greatness of your wisdom and your power and your love. We consider ourselves so rich to know you as our God, and we give you praise this morning, Lord, for your goodness to us in Christ Jesus. Amen.